0: Okay, well, let's all sit down again. We've all said hello. It's great to meet everyone. My name's Philip. I don't come from Colorado. We're going to read the Bible. Okay, 1 Peter, chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. Okay. Beloved. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evil doer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed.
1: Well, good morning. Welcome to uh, Bergen Park Church. I've got to admit something today. We've had a lot of technical difficulties, and that's why I'm holding a mic. This is not my usual position in holding a mic, and so uh, just kind of bear with me as I kind of get used to it. But you guys look good today. (laughs) You do. You look very good. Hey, it's good to see you here. A couple things I just want to update you on. One, uh, many of you know that we're in the process of searching for a worship director, and so we just covet your prayers. God sent us a lot of great candidates, but uh, we really want to uh, take our time and to uh, really hear from the Lord, allow Him to direct us, somebody that's not just called to lead worship, but that really feels called to Uh, minister to this community, to reach out, to find the sound of the community, to allow us to engage uh, both in the church but also outside the church so that we can connect uh, to the people around us. So please be praying for that. It's so important for us just to take our time. And sometimes we want to run into something and try to find someone right away. But uh, I think there's there's a wisdom to letting God bring that person. So please be in prayer for that. And again, remember next week, 9 o'clock. As Brian said, if you come at 9.30... Uh, That's fine, but we'll be right in the middle of it, so uh, so 9 o'clock. So good to see you guys here. Hey, if you want to grab a Bible, you'll see some in front of you. I want to encourage you always. It's so important that we get into God's Word, that we read the Word for ourselves, we understand it for ourselves, and then we allow God to use that in a spirit of humility, uh, really to begin to work on our own lives. The purpose of getting into God's Word is that God's Word, as James says, is like a mirror. Now, I try to avoid the mirror. I don't spend a lot of time in front, but I know the reason for getting in front of the mirror is so that I can see myself. And in the light of who God is, this is the beauty of worshiping God. In the light of who he is, you start to see yourself. And in seeing yourself, you know what needs to change in light of his love and grace. That it's the kindness. I love this in the Bible, the kindness of God leads to change, leads to repentance. And so as we get into God's Word today, let me kind of share with you where we're headed and what, what we're looking at. What Peter's done in First Peter is for the last three chapters, he's looking at the nature of suffering, that he's writing to a church that's being rejected by the culture in which they live. They're being rejected not because they don't belong to the culture. They're being rejected because they're now following Jesus Christ, And in following Jesus, if you look at 1 Peter chapter 4 in verse 4, it says that in following Jesus, others may think you are strange. In following Jesus, you're going to stand out. Jesus stood out. Now what he's going to say is, hey, listen, let's make sure we're not standing out for the wrong reasons. Just because you're persecuted doesn't mean you're being persecuted for the right reasons. And so he's going to say they're going to think it's strange that you do not jump into your the past way of living the same flood of dissipation he says, and they will heap abuse upon you. That in following Jesus, because what Christians believe in some ways to our culture is strange, and if we follow Christ, then others may think we are strange, and because of that, they may insult us, they may mock us, they may persecute us. The question becomes: How do you respond? How do you respond on the one hand to specifically maybe being rejected by our culture as Christians? And then second, I think you can also apply what Peter's talking about to suffering in general. How do you respond to the hardships, to the pain, to the challenges that you just face in everyday life? Because one of the challenges I think we face in our context and in our American culture is Americans don't deal well with suffering. I don't know if you realize that. Every other culture expects to suffer except for the American culture, at least in this climate today. Because when suffering comes in, we think something strange is happening. This isn't the way life is supposed to be. And so I look to a pill. I look to something to comfort myself. But every other society has believed that suffering is a normal part of life, and yet we live in a culture that is pursuing comfort and rest, It's pursuing relaxation. And so how do we respond? What does the Bible give us as a resource to endure the challenges of life? Well, I know some people in our community may say we just need to get out in nature. You know, nature is the place where we see harmony and unity. Have you heard that? That we need to stop gathering in churches. If we just spent more time on the mountaintop, we spent more time walking in the woods, fishing, hunting, hiking, all of that good stuff, then we'd be in a right place of harmony with mankind and everything would be good. We just need to connect more with nature. There's a woman who did that and wrote about her experiences. Her name is Annie Dillard. Annie Dillard wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning book called The Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. And what she did is she went to a creek in Virginia and decided to get in touch with nature, to discover what the harmony and the peace of nature is, to calm her soul, and just unite herself to Mother Earth. And in this book, what she does is she recounts her experiences. And though what she expected to find in communing with nature was peace and harmony and unity, she actually found the very opposite, that in communing with nature, she didn't find peace and unity. She saw violence, injustice, and inequity. And this is not a believer, but she describes in her book this experience, And here's what she says. She says, and I quote, Evolution loves death more than it loves you or me. I had thought to live by the side of a creek in order to shape my life to its free flow. But it seemed to have reached a point where I must draw the line, meaning I must part ways with the only world there is. You see, we value the individual supremely. But nature, nature values him, not a whit. It looks for the moment as though I might have to reject this creek life unless I want to be utterly brutalized. Either this world, my mother, is a monster, or I myself am a freak. Now let me explain what she's saying. She looked into nature and she wanted to find harmony, unity, and peace, but instead what she saw was suffering, injustice, hardship, and death. But see, inside of all of us, there's this outcry, this outrage. When we see suffering, we see death, we see injustice, there's something in us that says it's wrong. But when you go to nature, everything in nature says it's right. So either nature is a monster and something's wrong with nature, or there's something wrong with the emotions, the outrage that we feel when we see suffering. So she says this, consider the former, consider that the world is a monster, There is not a people in the world who behave as badly as a praying mantis. But wait, you say. There's no right or wrong in nature. Right or wrong is a human concept. But precisely. You see, we are moral creatures in a universe that is running on chance and death. Careening blindly from nowhere to nowhere. Which somehow has produced wonderful us. And right then... How could there be anything wrong with nature? It is our emotions, our values that must be amiss. We are the freaks. The world is fine. And let us all go have lobotomies to restore us to our natural state. We can leave the library then, go back to the creek lobotomized, and live on its first, untroubled as any muskrat or reed. You first. See our sexual, sec, excuse me—secular culture. Freudian says to us, "This world is all there is." And if this world is all there is, then how do we respond to suffering? What does this world give us to respond to the suffering, the pain, the hardship that we see in the world? What Annie Dillard is saying: When I commune with nature, I did not find love. I found the opposite. I found suffering injustice and pain. Well, see, the Bible has a different approach when it comes to suffering. It gives us not just simply a way to cope with suffering, but it gives us a way of understanding the suffering that we experience. A way of seeing suffering not just from our perspective and not just from the day-to-day moments-to-moment experiences that we have, but to see suffering as God sees suffering and how he uses that in our lives, not to crush or to destroy But rather, as Scripture says, to refine, to strengthen, and to renew us. So jump into this passage, if you will, as he explains two things. On the one hand, he's going to give us a picture of how should we respond? How should we understand the nature of suffering? How does God describe suffering in Scripture? And then, if you understand the nature of suffering, you're going to know how to respond. And so what does God give us? What does he say we need to utilize to respond when we run into those challenges in life? Watch this in verse 12. So how should we understand the suffering we experience? He says, Beloved, do not be surprised, and here are the key words, at the fiery trial that comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. In verse 12, two important words stand out. The first is the word fire. And the second is this fiery trial which comes upon you, as you notice, to test you. So first of all, Peter says that the hardships in life are like a fiery trial. The word fiery in the Greek is this word purosis, from which we get the English word to purify. That the very word that he's using here doesn't just mean to consume. It doesn't mean to destroy. Rather, he's saying a purifying fire. That when we experience suffering, the way we have to approach suffering from God's perspective is not just there to harm us, But rather that God uses the pain, the suffering, the hardship in life to renew us, to refine us. It's like a refiner's fire. Have you seen maybe, uh, I know my son likes forged in fire. you seen that television show? They all try to create these different kinds of medieval swords, different uh, daggers and spears. And they take this iron and they place it in the fire to strengthen, to purify it. Or you may think of metal ore. When you place metal ore into a fire, the goal of doing that is to take all the impurities, all the things that you don't want away, and what comes to the surface in the midst of that fire is pure gold, or it's silver. It's the metals that you want to hold on to. Well, I have a good friend that gave me this this rock. Now, I don't know a lot about geology. I'm not that great at science, but I like to look at rocks. And he tells me, in this rock is a trace amount of gold. Now, to your eye, I see something shining on the surface, and I'm going to assume it's gold. I'm imagining that what is shining on the surface is not gold. Maybe it's fool's gold. Because see, to the naked eye, we cannot see what's going on inside of this rock. We don't know what's there. Now, to a geologist, to the trained eye, they know. What we have to do is we've got to place it in the fire. It's got to be refined. It has to be broken down. And see, it's only when the fire is on that you can test what's really inside. Without the fire, there's no way to bring out the goodness inside. There's no way to know if there's silver or gold. There's no way to know if it's precious or if it's, it's worthless. But it's through the fire. The fire's necessary to draw out what is good inside. And see, when he says in verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that you're going through. When suffering comes in, you have to realize what God is doing in that is he wants to bring out, in some ways, the impurities, to push off the impurities, but then to draw out the goodness, the holiness. He wants to refine what's inside. He wants to purify us. You know, you'll see this theme throughout Scripture. If you go, like in Zechariah, in Zechariah chapter 13, he uses this same picture to describe suffering in life. Zechariah verse 13, 9 says, And I will put this, into the th- this third into the fire and refine them. And them means God's people. So he says, I'm going to put them in the fire and refine them as one refines silver and tests them as gold is tested. Now listen to the result. And they will call upon my name. Now, when will they call upon my name? Not before they're tested. Not before the fire. But he says, I'm going to place them in the fire like silver or gold. And when they come out, they will call upon my name. And I will answer them. And I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Malachi chapter 3, verse 3 says the same thing. Describing God, it says... He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. They will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Notice, when will they bring offerings of righteousness? When everything's going great, on the good day, when you get a raise, when you get a job, when you get married, hey, those are great days, right? Those are days to rejoice. But he says it's when you go through the hardships of life, the suffering of life, that the righteousness, what we, what we, our right relationship with God, what God produces in us, begins to come out. And then, if we jump back in First Peter, in First Peter chapter one verses six and seven, Peter begins this book with that same theme. If you look at First Peter chapter one verse six, he says, "In this, now the this is our salvation." He's going to say, "In our salvation, we rejoice." And yet, here's the challenge in life, for a little while, we may have to suffer. That's the way he describes, the Bible describes life, though it seems long for us, he describes it as a little while. That in this little while period of life, we may have to suffer, if necessary. But notice the results. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though refined by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's after we go through the trials that there is praise and glory and honor because what God does in the trials is he refines us. He purifies us. I think we know he shows us what's most important. I think all of us probably can relate to that in the suffering of life. You go through hardship. Maybe you have one of those near-death experiences, you know, a car. You you just barely miss the car as it's going by, and, you know, every uh, cell in your body is reverberating, and, and it looks like the sun is new, the sky is new. Everything is brand new, because when you go through those challenges, it awakes you to what matters the most. So it refines. But the second word that he uses is it's a refining fire to test us. Now, what is it testing? In some ways, the reason someone gives another person a test is to find out what's in there. And in in some ways, that's what God is doing. It's not that he doesn't know. It's to show us what we don't know. That God takes us through the trials to show us what we're trusting in. See, in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1, he says it's to test, you ready, the genuineness of your faith. Right now, if we had a quiz and I said, hey, give me a percentage how genuine is your faith? Hey, I'd say a hundred right now. I'm feeling good. It's a good day. We're gathered together. We just sang. We just pray. We don't know the genuineness of our faith, just like I don't know the genuine purity of what's in fi- in, inside this rock. The only way I will know is the rock has to be tested. Well, likewise, when it comes to your faith, the only way you know that you're really trusting in God is you have to be Tested. Because I don't know about you, but uh, if I can confess for a moment, I don't do well with suffering. This man was not born to suffer. (laughs) This man was born to enjoy life. And when suffering comes into my life, I see the ugliness inside. And I can be honest about that. My wife sees it. You know, the ugliness comes out. What is that? That's the impurities, isn't it? The reason it comes out, church, and the reason what Peter's saying is the reason that stuff comes out is because you have allowed it to be in there. And you allowed it to be in there when you got married, and you allowed it to be in there when you got the job, and you allowed it to be in there when you got the raise and when everything was going great and you built the house and all this stuff is happening, right? We allowed that stuff to be in there. We didn't address it on the good days. Rather, it's when the fire comes and we see the impurities And we see, God, that we have the opportunity to test the genuineness of our faith. Now, I don't know if you've gone through experiences in life where you've had nothing or next to nothing. But I remember in college, I went to a a university, Baylor University, good Baptist school. A lot of my friends, you know, we grew up in families, and I did too, grew up in a great family, very well cared for. We had everything that we needed. And our parents, my parents at least, helped us through college, but then they said, you know, one marriage, one college, that's it. I was not prepared. Went off to seminary, and in seminary, I basically had a S10 truck, Chevy S10, drove to New England, went to this seminary, started working on this 200 acre estate, taking care of the the lawn and and uh, everything around it, and then I got married, and that was great. And after that, we lived in an, with another family, and with his family, we were nannies, and we. I took care of the property, painted the house, all sorts of things. And then I remember one day at this second house that we were living at, the lymans they were called, came to us and said, you know, we're going to move. And we're going to move in about two, three months. We just bought a house. Um, you need to find another place to live. But well, we had no money, no resources. Now, we had jobs. We had numerous jobs. And I remember sitting there for a moment and thinking to myself, and I was very financially conservative. I didn't spend a lot. I saved everything. But in that moment, I realized that money wasn't just a tool or a resource to me. Money brought me peace. Because as soon as I was presented with a situation where my money and what I needed didn't match up, I realized I wasn't trusting in God for my security. I was trusting in what I had. And when I didn't have it, I saw the impurities come to the surface. Now, sometimes those impurities can be used for good reasons to go work harder, find something, find a solution. We can respond to that well. But you see inside of yourself in moments like that what I'm really trusting in. On the good days, I'd say, yeah, of course I'm trusting in God to provide. But on the days where the ends don't meet the means, you realize there's something impure. In myself, in my faith, I really don't think God is good. Or maybe I don't think God can provide. And maybe my experiences are discipling me more than what I find in God's word and who God is. So Peter says, the suffering we experience, the first thing we have to have is a way of thinking. If you go into it blindly, it's going to catch you off guard. But if you go into it knowing that God wants to use this to show you his goodness, to teach you his love, not to crush you, but to refine you to test the genuineness of your faith. He said, God is there to test you. And so how should we respond? Well, if you notice in verse 17, there's some words there that stand out to me. He says in verse 17, it's time for judgment to begin with a household of God. That doesn't sound friendly because we are the household of God. The church is the body of Christ. That the church isn't just a place we attend, we are God's family, we are his household, and he's saying the purpose of these trials is like judgment. Now, not judgment, not punishment, because on the cross, Jesus died, and in his death, our sin was punished. But see, what judgment can do also is to purify the fear of judgment can purify. It can cause us to say, wait a minute, this life, even our secular culture will say this life is all there is. And we say, no, I think there's another life to come. In this life, I want to purify my heart. I want to allow the trials that come in not to harm me, but rather to draw me in a way that I become more and more like Jesus Christ. That he's saying that when trials come into your life, they can come in as judgment. But see, not judgment against you, but judgment against the things that you're trusting in. Meaning, if you're trusting in something that doesn't last, what those trials will show you is that it doesn't last. You realize only in suffering that money can't solve all problems. On the good days, it seems strong and firm, but when you're going through hardships and trials, you realize it can't solve this. And so he says it's like judgment, but the second part is once we understand the nature of suffering we have to understand how should we respond and there are three major commands in this passage the first is in verse 12 and he says don't be surprised the second is in verse 13 second command is is uh what is it rejoice and the third command is in verse 19 that we are to trust so how should we respond in three ways do not be surprised rejoice and then finally trust so verse 12 again notice this he says in verse 12, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. Now realize, he's speaking to a community of people who knew suffering. So they're not saying, it's not surprised like unexpected. Life was suffering. If you live in an agricultural economy, it's suffering. You see death every day. You know that your life exists. The reason you have life is because someone else has died. And so they understood suffering. The suffering he's responding to, the surprise that's damaging them, is not just the event. And I find this in pastoral counseling all the time. That when someone comes into my office, the despair that they're carrying is not just the event that's happened to them. It's what they believe about the event that's happened to them. It's what they tell themselves. It's not to say that the suffering in the event is good. Or that the suffering in the event somehow wasn't painful or wasn't suffering and didn't lead to discouragement. Of course it does. But the power of that suffering, the lingering of that suffering, is what you tell yourself based on what's happened. And listen, I think all of us know this because I know there's some in here who think they are unworthy to be loved. There are some in here right now who do not believe that they have what it takes. They don't believe that God could love them. Or maybe you can't trust someone else. Maybe you're married and you find it difficult to trust someone. Maybe you're single. And you find it hard to share with someone else what's going on in your life. And the reason that that's come up is not because of what you're experiencing today. It's because of what your parents told you 30 years ago. Your dad may have said to you, hey, son, you're never going to measure up. And maybe that was just a bad day for him. Maybe it wasn't what he always said. But you know how those things kind of linger in our MP, MP4 in our brain? It's no longer VHS or DVD. I don't know what it is now. On our Netflix in the brain. You, know, you kind of grab these moments in life. And maybe that didn't define your mother or your father. But they said something at a poignant moment in life when you're six or seven. And this word, this idea stuck with you. It wasn't the pain of the experience as much. It was what you believe about what happens that continues to rob and to steal. See, what Peter's saying here is don't be surprised. Meaning, don't be surprised. Don't say to yourself, you know, God, I shouldn't be suffering. I deserve something better. Have you thought that? I I know I do. (laughs) Be honest. God, I deserve something better. But see, what that is is a lie. Because, see, what I really deserve, I haven't gotten. What I deserve is judgment. Because see, I rebelled against the Creator who loved me and gave Himself for me, not even before I came to Him, but after I've come to know Christ. We haven't received what we deserved. We received, rather, as Christians, what we did not deserve. And even if we do not know God, we haven't received what we deserve, because God is kind on the righteous and the unrighteous, the believer and the unbeliever. The rain falls on all of us, and so he's saying, "Do not be surprised." Meaning, be careful what you assign to your suffering. Be careful what you say it it means. You know the difference in chapter Genesis chapter one, and then you go to Genesis chapter two and three. There's a major difference there, but the only difference in the way God describes creation and Satan describes creation is the interpretation. It's not the facts. Both God and Satan say, Hey, there's a tree of life and there's a tree of good and evil. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, Satan doesn't argue that. What he says, he throws in an interpretation. The reason God's saying this is because he is not good and he cannot be trusted. What did Adam and Eve give into? They gave into a lie. When you give into a lie, Instead of worshiping the creator, you now, the creation, start worshiping the creation. And you exchange, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, the truth of God for a lie. And we start worshiping created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. The pain of suffering is in what we believe about our suffering. Not to diminish, and understand, I don't want to diminish what's happened. But he's saying, don't be surprised. Don't let it teach you the wrong things. Rather... What I love in this passage is he just begins to describe for a group of people that are going through suffering who they really are. He reminds us constantly of who we are. Look at verse 12. He calls us right off the bat, beloved. That in your suffering, know you are loved. That seems like irony, an oxymoron. How can I be loved and yet have a father who allows me to suffer? I know my two-year-old, probably when my kid was a two-year-old, probably asked the same question. Dad, how could you do this to me? How could you allow pain in my life, whether it's just simply being spanked or taking him to the doctor? There's pain we introduce into our children's lives, but because we have a wisdom that is higher than their ways and thoughts that are higher than their thoughts, even our children cannot understand how our parents would allow pain and suffering into our lives. And yet we know that pain and suffering is good. See, the one thing that suffering cannot mean for the Christian If we really believe in God and what Jesus Christ has done, the one thing that suffering cannot mean is that God doesn't love you. Now, why is that? It's the cross. The cross of Christ, what that tells us, it doesn't tell us. Christianity doesn't answer every question as to why something happens. I don't know. I think some of the greatest arguments against the existence of God is from evil and suffering. I think those are real arguments. And yet, what the cross says is that if Jesus Christ was willing to go through this for us, if Jesus was willing to go through the only furnace that could destroy you because of his love for you, then every furnace we experience is there not to experience punishment, but to refine us to know his love. See, if the cross is true and Christ died, and in the death of Jesus, I know we focus on the physical suffering, but we'll talk about this a little on Good Friday and then also Easter morning. It was the spiritual separation between Father and Son, that he who has existed with the Father from eternity past, suddenly when you go into the Garden of Gethsemane, he turns to the Father, and guess what? The Father's not there. Imagine that as a young child running to your parents, and your parents are not there the place of comfort, security, knowledge, experience, that love is no longer there. When Jesus turned to the Father, instead of seeing the love of his Father, he saw the wrath of God, and it's only on the cross that Jesus says, My God. Everywhere else in the New Testament, he calls God Father. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus was God forsaken. The furnace that we deserve was poured out on his life so that we would not be crushed in the furnace, but rather refined. The one thing suffering cannot mean is that God does not love you. Now, listen, you got to hold on to that. Because when you go through suffering, everything in you is going to say, God has rejected me. But he's saying, realize you are beloved. You are beloved. Then second, he says also in verse 17, that we are to rejoice insofar as you share in the sufferings of Christ, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed, meaning that one day we're going to see the fullness of God's presence. Now listen to how Paul describes this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, he says, For this, meaning our lives, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Notice how he describes the suffering of life. Light, momentary affliction. But what is it doing? It's preparing for us an eternal weight. That sounds like a lot. That sounds good. An eternal weight of glory that far outweighs, meaning all the suffering we experience in life and we are faithful to God in will result in rejoicing when we see him face to face. That we will rejoice as Jesus rejoiced. That we participate in the sufferings of Christ. But then he goes on to say, and this is an amazing concept. If you notice in verse 14, He says, if you're insulted, and insulted not because you're a jerk, not because of the way you drive, but rather notice, because of the name of Christ, meaning because of your association with Jesus, he says you're blessed. Now, why are we blessed? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. I don't know if that stands out to you, but he says... When you're insulted, meaning everyone else is rejecting you, right? They're mocking you, making fun of you. You're an an idiot to believe this. Trust the scriptures, you know, the whole gospel story. Giving your life to Christ, coming, gathering here, listening to me. This is ridiculous. You guys are fools. But he says, what does he tell us about who we are? We are those to whom the spirit of glory and of God rests on. Which means the very power and presence, the Holy Spirit. That raised Jesus Christ from the dead is now at work and alive within me. And it's the Spirit, as Scripture says, that constantly is crying out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Abba, Father. You know what the Spirit loves? What the Spirit loves to do is to exalt God. He loves to set our eyes on God. And what He loves to do in your life, if you'll allow the Spirit, if you'll walk by the Spirit... He, allows, he, he loves to expose the lies and cause us to experience the truth. You know, Christianity is an intellectual faith, but it's also experiential. Because when you say and cry out, Abba, Father, that's not up here in the mind. That's not multiple choice. That is worship. That is adoration in the heart. And what he's saying is the truths about our faith cannot just be anchors to hold on to Intellectually. They also have to become subjective realities that we live through relationally. You with me? It can't just be anchors. Anchors are important intellectually, but they also have to become a living reality. That I'm not just experiencing and knowing God from a distance, but God knows me. And his very presence is in me. And he's saying as you're going through suffering, know you're loved. Know you're suffering in the same way that Christ suffered, but know that the very spirit of God is in you and then recognize you belong to him you notice that? If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're insulted because his name is on you. He has adopted you and brought you into his family, an amazing family that we did not deserve. And yet his name is on you, so you're not alone. You belong to him. You see what he's doing? What he's doing as you go through suffering is he is dissolving the lies that we believe. It's not about you. I think I'm alone. I think I must be unlovable when I go through suffering. I'm, I believe that this suffering has no purpose. And I can't possibly believe that God would be with me. But he's saying, as you go through suffering, you've got to anchor, anchor yourselves in these realities. God is using this to refine you, to purify you. But we have to respond. How? Don't believe the lies. Do not be surprised, but then rejoice. And then finally, he says in verse 19, we have to trust We've got to trust, therefore, those who suffer according to God's will. So notice, it's not random, is it? He's not saying, hey, those who suffer when just random things come, but know that God is at work in your life. And he says, suffer according to God's will. This does not surprise him. And it could be that what you're going through today prepares you for the suffering of tomorrow, the challenges of tomorrow, to strengthen your faith. And so he says, according to God's will, and trusting their souls. And notice, this is the only place this word's used. It's the only place in the New Testament where you find the word creator. Now, why would Paul, Peter say, entrusting yourself to your faithful creator? Because he says, God is the one that's created, the only thing that matters, and that is your soul. And he is faithful. Who? somebody's talking. <laughs> Sorry, there's a little something going on up here. So he says, we've got to trust him. Now, what does trust look like? Just real quick, in verses 15 and 16, he tells you. What does it look like to trust him? Well, he says, let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, doer, as a meddler. Yet, if you're going to suffer, suffer as a Christian. Meaning, suffer by doing the right thing. The way that trust shows up in your life is through a dirty four-letter word called obey. O-B-E-Y, yeah, that's four. Obey, obedience. Trust shows up in obedience. What he's saying is when you're going through the fire, trust him. You know, when the dentist is at work in your mouth, it's really important to stay still. I recently had this tooth just ripped out of my mouth, and it was not a good experience. But I'll tell you one thing. I trusted him. I didn't have a choice, but I trusted him. And I I didn't want to get outside of his will. Because when you hear that drill, you hear that sound, and you hear that, you know, kind of crunching, you, you don't want to move. And what he's saying is when you're going through that, stay put. Trust him. Trust him. The suffering, the, the greater suffering comes when we move outside. We move to the We don't trust him. Because the promise is, what he's saying is he's with us. He's with us. You know, Isaiah, as we close, captures it this way. And I love these verses. And, and if you want to go there, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1 says, Fear not. There's a lot to fear in life, but he says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you, and I have called you by name, and you are mine. And So when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Verse 5, Fear not, for I am with you. You know, the story that this passage brings to mind is in Daniel chapter 3. The story of three men who were thrown literally into the fire. Thrown into the fire, not because they were suffering for what they had done wrong, suffering for what they had done right. They wouldn't, re- they wouldn't reject the name of God. And under this unjust king, Nebuchadnezzar, they were thrown into the fire. Their names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And when they were thrown into the fire... Nebuchadnezzar, as he looked in, saw not three outlines, but four. And he said, there is one in there who is like a son of God. See, in Scripture, that image of the son of God is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the pre-revelation of Jesus Christ. That as Jesus is with us through the fire, as we rest and trust in him, the fire does not destroy, the fire refines. Why? Again, why? Why? And here's the idea, because Jesus went through the only fire that could destroy you. And he did that out of love for you. And if you trust that, listen, not just believe it, if you'll rest in it. Meaning if you'll obey in that and say, God, I'm not going to move to the left or the right right now. I may want to go for comfort. I may want to run out of this stress that I'm experiencing and experiencing something better. And the culture saying, hey, here are all the places you can run to, whether it's sex or comfort or money or relationships, or power. Here are all the places you can go to, and we see it, and it's so accessible. But he's saying, I'm with you. If you'll just rest, if you'll trust. And what you need to look to is, not just to your own willpower, but to the cross and what God has done for you, making you the children of God, loving you, redeeming you, pulling you out of the flame, so that he can be with you, and then to allow his voice to speak. Are we willing to trust him? And then beyond that, hey guys, are we willing to be patient with each other when we go through suffering? because I don't know about you when I go through suffering there's a lot of junk that comes out and I need you not just to recognize and to call out my junk but to call me back to Jesus to call me back to the one place where I can find truth and in finding truth experience grace and experience grace become more like Christ are you with me? what we're learning is not just how can we suffer well but how can we help one another to walk through the challenges of life and be strengthened. Hey, let me pray for us. And worship team, would you come up? Father, I thank you that you give us a perspective that's not natural to us. Lord, um, I know in this room there's a lot of hardship. There's, there's suffering and there's stories we don't know. On the outside, we look fine, but on the inside, there is anxiety. There can be fear. Lord, you've told us we have an enemy that prowls around, but his weapons are to deceive and to lie, to take the events of life and to interpret them in a way that leads us from you, that leads us, Father, from being changed by your grace and truth. And Lord, in many ways, leads us to things that we will find way too many years late, that they were empty and they could not satisfy our souls. And so, Father, I thank you for the power of the Spirit that convicts. And so, Lord, in our brokenness, we respond to you and say, Father, would you show us and remind us that we are the children of God and that as we go through trials in life, we can trust you. And maybe our father in life wasn't good, but, Father, you have shown us your goodness through the cross and you've given us your Holy Spirit. Now you've placed us in this community. Help us not to run from what you're teaching us, but, Lord, to rest and to hope. So, Father, guide us in that truth we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.